This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. And that's not what he wanted. And it made him, made him have a nervous breakdown by the end of the year and record a record that accidentally killed Britpop. Hello, and welcome to another new episode of Live Through That. I'm your host, Mike Hipple, and on this podcast, we'll dig deeper into a pivotal moment into the lives of some of my favorite artists from the 80s and 90s. This week, we're shifting gears a little bit with our guest, Jane Savage. Yes, there was a time when she was in a band called The Kill Devil Hills, but ultimately she started a PR company called Savage and Best, which promoted a slew of the biggest British bands of the 90s, including Suede, Pulp, Elastica, and so many others. There's even a legend that Jane coined the phrase Britpop. Her first book, Lunch with the Wild Frontiers, A History of Britpop and Excess in 13 and a Half Chapters, was a fantastic read. Her second book, Here They Come with Their Makeup On, Suede, Coming Up, and More Adventures Beyond the Wild Frontiers, was released in 2022. And her third book on Pulp's This Is Hardcore will be released on March 7th. It's part of the brilliant 33 and a Third series from Bloomsbury Press. Jane's pivotal moment that she's going to talk about today is the first time she saw Suede perform live and how she knew that that was the band that she was waiting for her whole life. We just started a PR company at that point, maybe about a year through it or something. And so I was seeing lots of new bands in pubs. So I saw Curve playing playing to nobody um, and I saw Verve playing to six people and I think I went along to the Falcon in early 80 in early 92 um, to, and, I, and this and uh, but there were three gigs in the same sort of two-month period there was the New Cross um, venue there was the Falcon and the, the one I particularly remember was the Africa Centre which was maybe April the 28th 92 and I think I'd heard a four track cassette of this band called Suede and I'd seen a letter that Brett had written to our office which I thought had been written by a fan but was actually written by Brett himself and, and it was in this this person seemed to know so much about this band I thought this is very strange no one's heard of this band and then of course it was signed Brett at the end and it was just basically him explaining all the lyrics so I went along to see the band and um, by the time they played the Africa Centre believe it or not I don't I think I'd fallen in love with this the way Brett was addressing the audience, the way he was draping himself over the microphone, sort of the, the way he was androgynous, the way he didn't care about anything. And um, there was a song called Pantomime Horse that particularly leapt out at me, which was um, which was a lyric, have you ever tried it that way? It seemed to be so ambiguous. It could be talking about chocolate, anything, you know. And But you kind of knew what he was talking about. And then there was a, you know, a lyric in the drowners. Um, we kissed in his room in a popular ch- to a popular tune, and he wondered, well, who was he kissing in this room? Was he kissing a girl in the boyfriend's you know, bedroom? It was a very ambiguous lyric, and I think all this stuff was swimming around these lyrics. And I'm very drawn to lyrics, always have been. And um, when I saw Brett performing for those first three gigs at the start of '92, I kind of, I think, I was getting quite good at PR by that point. And I, I, I think I've been in a band and I'd actually done my own band's PR and that's how I got into it. And, um, but I was kind of sh- a, sh- a shy band member. 
And I think I, from that point, I kind of realised I could help make this band famous as if I was in the band. So from that moment onwards, I almost got up every day with my mission. How can I make Suede bigger tomorrow than they are today? The thing about um, Suede's lyrics were that you could, you could find them endlessly fascinating. And it's perfect for a journalist to write about because there was so much going on. And I think the press fell in love with him because of because of Brett's lyrics. Obviously, Bernard was incredible, and he was like you know a new Johnny Marr, you know, guitarist, and um, and he had some incredible sort of sounds going on. But I think journalists tend to write about lyrics rather than chords, and um, because of that, the press honed in on Brett really, which I don't think Bernard was particularly happy about. I think he thought the press were the enemy; they didn't know what they were talking about. They never wrote about the so- you know, the real the real truth of the songs. They just wrote about you know the glamour and the style. Bernard was not really bothered about stuff like that. You know, it was, it was all about, it was about the music to Bernard. And of course, Brett's about the music, but I think Bernard got scared off by that. But I think um, from that point onwards, in early 92, I became obsessed. I was probably the best press officer anybody could have hoped for, because <laughs> my, uh, you know, everyone in our office was was single. We were in our early 20s. We never went home. We stayed in the office till late every night. The bands came into our office and you know mixed with us. We were the same age. They'd rather go and stay with us or be with us in our office than go to their record companies because we didn't have a financial interest in them, for one. We all loved what we did. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why, I mean, everybody in the office loves Suede. I think that's one of the reasons why I got 18 front covers before their first album came out, which was ludicrous in hindsight. Some people said they were overhyped, but it was just genuinely over-enthusiasm on my part, and the fact that they were brilliant. I had to stop her here. 18 magazine covers before their first record came out? How does that work? Uh, well, the way, the way it works, I suppose, I think I'd honed my craft by the point I came across Suede. I'd had a kind of a full dress rehearsal with a band called Curve, who may not mean anything anymore, but at the time, I learned how you kind of guide people towards certain I say truths about a band, but for instance, Dean had been, you know, one of the bass players in the Eurythmics, and Tony and Dean had been in a band called State of Play, who were kind of like a pop band signed to Virgin. Nobody knew, nobody knew that. State of Play were ignored by the media. So I just got these white labels and wrote Curve on them and nothing else and sent them to the Murder Maker and the NME so that no one knew anything about their history. And I think they got single of the week in both papers. And then it was too late to say, oh, God, we just realised it's this band called State of Play. <laughs> you know. And so I think I kind of learned you could do little tricks like that. And then I think I went to the first London show that they did at the Underworld in Camden. And it was queues around the block. You couldn't get in. And it was just the media or just the press that had, um, that had made that happen. And I thought, wow, you can really have an effect if you get the enemy and Maldemek to fall in love with your band. At this stage, those two were the Bible. I mean, now, you know, it's a, it's, you know, it's all over the internet. People check things out before there were, there were, at that point, there were two sources, really, the enemy and the melody maker for working out whether the band is any, were any good. And so I think I learned then, and then subsequently, I think I'd already done the Pixies and the Cocteau Twins, so I knew how to, and Green on Red, I'd got covers for various bands I've been looking after before. So I think by the time I came to Suede, I knew what I was doing. But having said that, there was an element of luck because... Mel Demaker put them on the front cover with the headline, The Best New Band in Britain. That was a fluke. Steve Sutherland took a chance on it. It was a rubbish composite cover with a bit of 
EMF on it as well. They didn't even have the, you know, the, the gall to stick them right over the front cover. It was a kind of, oh dear, can we do this? But that made everybody go, oh really, do I have to take notice of this? I've never heard anything about them. And our office got hundreds of phone calls in the next few weeks because people wanted to, to listen to the demos. And then the demos were great, but even then, that cover was probably April 92. And I think two months later, they headlined one of the tents, or the Meldemaker tent. And um, you couldn't get in the tent. You know, I mean, I don't know how many people fit in those things, 800 to 1,000 people, maybe less. It was cute, you know, you couldn't hardly get in it. But I could still tell that most of the people at the back were had folded their arms. They'd never heard a suede song before, and they were waiting to be disappointed. That's what, they were, that's what they were waiting. They were waiting to be disappointed by the best new band in Britain. That's what. That's why I sensed. And then after twenty minutes, the place was chaos. You know, you, you couldn't get any. The, everybody had completely been converted because they were so brilliant. When Savage and Best took on a client, they believed in that client one hundred percent. But still, isn't that a lot of pressure to have a headline like "Best New Band in Britain" out there before anybody's even heard of said band? That that's never happened to me before. I've always done covers where it's never been a new band like that where it's been so over the top. And I actually knew that they could stand up for it. So I probably was so arrogant at that point in my life as you are when you're 24 or something that you kind of, I kind of thought, um, well, there is, they're at least as good as this. You know, why haven't you said they're the best band in Britain? Why are you saying they're the best new, new band in Britain? You know, why hold back? I really thought they were good enough, you know. Um, so I, no, I wasn't scared at all. In those days, all I cared about, you know, as I got up in the morning, it's a very sad existence, Mike, <laughs> getting up in the morning and just all, all you think about is the, your work. I loved my job, you know, um, so I, and that's quite rare, I think. That's why I say bands were very lucky to have Savage and Best in those days because we absolutely loved what we did. These days, Jane spends a lot of time writing books, including her newest one on Pulp's album This Is Hardcore for Bloomsbury's 33 and a Third series, which I absolutely adore. I wanted to know how she approached writing this book as opposed to her two previous books, which felt more memoir-like and conversational. Um, okay, so um, obviously I've written three books now and the, pe- pe- the things people spot about my writing style is it's, it's been described quite often as conspiratorial. or you know, So the, the reader is involved. I, I, I do little asides to the reader. You know, little sort of, you know, guffaws or whatever and just to know that we're all on the same you know and I think when I wrote Lunch with the Wild Frontiers I had this idea that no matter what I said about any of the artists I represented I would try to sound more foolish than anything I could say about them so that no one thought I could ever say anything you know but I, I come over as, as as more I don't know um idiotic as, as I would. so you know so because that in that way you know, I'm not, I'm not mocking in any way. It's 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 not congratu- you know, self-congratulatory. It's, you know, it's... um. So that's kind of the, the tone I have in all my books. But obviously the last... The book about Suede, my second book, Here They Come With Their Makeup On, was about a period of Suede rising from the ashes. And the new book about pulp is really about the end of Britpop. And um, I possibly would describe it as more scholarly because it is... Um, I examine a very specific period in the life of Jarvis Cocker and pulp which starts with the year zero of Jarvis invading the stage at the Brit Awards in 1996 and waggling his fully clothed bum at the King of Pop. Um, and that point, uh, and that particular incident, um, spiralling him off into this um, into this 
huge chasm of fame, which he didn't like. He became the fifth most famous man in Britain behind John Major, Frank Bruno, Will Carling and Michael Barrymore, all names that not many Americans will remember, possibly. But they're all huge names at the time. And Jarvis, at that point, became a superstar in Britain, uh, but it wasn't on his own terms. It was kind of a vacuous fame. I think he'd always wanted the fame that he was been hankering after for 16 years since they formed in 1978 to be the kind of fame where he could one day go up in a spaceship and, you know, court the most glamorous women in the world. And instead he was on the cover of all the tabloids with everyone saying, you know, wacky Jarvis showing his bum to Michael Jackson. And that's not what he wanted. And it made him, made him have a nervous breakdown by the end of the year and record a record that accidentally killed Britpop because it was so dark. It equated fame with pornography. It was about death, aging, mortality, drugs, despair, not what anyone was expecting from the band that recorded Common People. And I think that's a really interesting record to take apart and work out how it happened. So, yes, possibly my books have become more scholarly. <laughs> and of course, I have to ask about the persisting rumor that Jane coined the term Britpop. No, I, there's so many people that claim they invented the term. I definitely didn't invent the term. I think I probably, someone described it as I painted the pictures or something. And I represented all the bands that got lumped together in this movement, got Britpop. But because I was there at the beginning and I got, and I orchestrated certain movements, I, for instance, quite early on in my so-called career, I looked after a band, well, I looked after Green on Red, the American band. It shows you that I'm not... 18 years old anymore and um and i realized that if i lumped them in with something called the new american invasion with bands like jason and the scorchers and the, and the rain parade and um and the long riders that they would get twice as much coverage as if they were just green on red and then i did a band called gay bikers and acid and this is when i was you know a fiercely independent pr which meant i didn't even have an office and um i um and I, when I did Gay Bikes and Acid, I realised if I lumped them in with a, with a movement called the Grebo movement, with Pot Will Eat Itself and Crazy Head, they got twice as much coverage. So, again, when I was doing Moose and Curve and Lush, I didn't stand in the way of people saying they're shoegazing bands. I herded them towards that movement in order that everybody wrote about this movement called shoegazing. And, um, and so, before the Britpop movement there was something called the Camden scene and the Camden scene revolved around our office that was in Camden because all the bands hung around there and we used to send them down a pub called the Good Mixer because you know it was bad form to do an interview in the office so I thought I'd send them down a really dodgy pub full of old men you know with a sort of a with sawdust all over the floor and um and that became the Britpop or the Camden pub and so that morphed into the Britpop scene um so there was a pivotal moment when Britpop kind of became Britpop and it was, we had just taken on Pulp. We'd been going going for about 10 years. I don't know, maybe longer, maybe 14 years. And people said, why are you taking on Pulp? They've been going for so long. They're just part of the furniture. And it was because they just got really good. We just noticed how with My Legendary Girlfriend and a couple of other singles that they had, they just suddenly got really good. And we needed to get them in a monthly magazine, but no monthly magazine would take a chance with a band like Pulp, who've been going for years and years. So when I spoke to Select Magazine, I said, well, you know, can you put Suede on the cover? No, we can't do that again. We've already done it four times. 
But what we could all do together is put all these bands in something and just, it could be a movement. So they put three of our bands in there, which was the Oters, Pulp and Suede, and there were two more bands, St. Etienne and Denning. And they were the five bands that became part of this first feature in Select Magazine, which you could identify as the first Brit pop feature. And I think Stuart McConey, who wrote that piece, probably coined the term around that time, the same time that Steve Lamack did. And I certainly didn't call it Britpop, but I was there, you know, painting the pictures as it were. Now, no band wants to be herded into a movement of, of any description because we are all individuals. <laughs> well, that's what they would say. And they're completely right. But if it's a shortcut to some kind of success, I think it's worth doing because um, journalists are very busy people. And um, in those days, if everyone was competing for space, if they can identify something that they think is happening, that no one outside of that sphere would know and they can put stick their name to it. It was a, it was a symbiotic relationship between PRs and journalists and bands themselves with occasionally record companies trying to, you know, nose in somewhere. And I think um, the bands didn't like it. No, I think some of the bands you probably wouldn't respect so much would have died to be in those movements. And they were probably, you know, bands that started sending us tapes towards the end of the movement, you know, trying to sound like Suede and Pulp and every, every other band that were around. You know, we got hundreds of those tapes towards the end of Britpop. It became this ever-decreasing circles thing in the end with every band being a, another version of a band you'd already heard before. The other thing about Britpop is that it, it morphed into different sort of types of, um, of music at the time. So obviously there's the big four, Suede, Blur, Oasis, um, Elastica. No, Pulp. I suppose Elastica you'd have to be. So I'd say the big five, basically. So if And then some people count Radiohead and The Verve in there. But are they really? And then also, I think of Britpop as, I think of Britpop as a, in the early movement, it was all the bands dancing around, dancing at a club called Syndrome, just off Oxford Street. And then when Oasis came to London, um, all that movement changed. They came, they arrived with bodyguards and a bit of like, you know, that lad culture, which eventually became a cartoon lad culture. And I think um, that changed everything as well. So I don't, a Britpop became something that it wasn't to start with. Britpop didn't create as big of a wave in the U.S. as it did in the U.K. I was interested in hearing Jane's thoughts on why that was. Yeah, I think Britpop probably made it in New York and Toronto and uh, Boston and a couple of places like that. But generally, you're absolutely right. And there were a couple of moments when I think um, why it didn't happen. I I think Brett did an interview on, on The Letterman Show and they said, David Letterman said to him, what bands do you listen to other than Suede? And he's, you're meant to say Aerosmith and Guns N' Roses. And Brett just said, I listen to Suede. <laughs> and I think at that moment, everybody just thought, oh, for fuck's sake, obviously, you know, don't, um, I don't want this. I don't want, you know, British arrogance. I want, you know, you had to play the game, I think. America's a big country. You have to play the game to break a country like that. People don't want British arrogance. And I think a lot of America, American music, I've identified these two types of, the way you approach music, I could, I could never explain a band like the Manic Street Preachers to an American audience, which you say, well, the guitarist writes the lyrics for a singer who doesn't necessarily know what the lyrics are about, but they're quite dark, and the guitarist's guitar isn't plugged in for a lot of the performances as well, <laughs> and um, you know, that, that I'm not sure that Americans who love guitar prowess 
to, to call it um to be gen to generalize about it you know it's um it's not i think we do like a lot of style ever in britain and um i'm not saying that our content is nonsense i just say that we like style and i think a lot of that didn't translate to america Jane's book on Pulp's This Is Hardcore is fascinating. I wanted to ask her about her comments on the album cover and the state of conflict over it. The artwork for This Is Hardcore, which was designed by Peter Saville from a painting by John Curran, who's a, you know an incredible artist, had a series of people working on it. And Peter Saville obviously did the iconic artwork for Georgia Vision and also did Coming Up for Slade. He did Unknown Pleasures, for instance, and New Orders um, records as well. So when the record first came out, it's, it has a woman on all fours, and it's a it's a pornographic image. Um, you know, you don't see the bottom half particularly, but she's crouched on all fours in a quite a in a quite a um a demeaning pose. And I think when it first came out in '98, I went on radio to sort of defend the artwork because pulp aren't that kind of band that would use the artwork like that. And I don't. I think at the time I was naive, and I shouldn't have defended the artwork in the way that I did because on you know. As I've looked into it over the last 25 years, um, I've kind of come down to the conclusion that the first protests against the record or the cover on the tube, which said this is sexist and this is demeaning, were quite right because of the way the woman's positioned, the fact she's got this is hardcore stamped on her head, um, like she's owned, um, the fact that we don't really know much about the model in the same way that, I mean, I think in the book I made a comparison with Lolita, whose voice is silenced, by the narrator, we know nothing about Ksenia, the model, the Belarusian cover cover model, and the way also. Um, by the way, by the way, there is another caveat to what I'm saying now, which I'll come to it in the end, which is um, so when so when the so the artwork was meant to be um, a painting, but it got digitally manipulated. So in the end, it ends up looking like a photograph. As a painting, it's probably not pornographic or sexist and demeaning, but as it was digitally manipulated and it became more like a photograph, I think it was and is. But that's with the understanding that I think Jarvis and Steve Mackey had several meetings with John and Peter Saville and wanted to create something shocking that people would be slightly disgusted about because it was meant to be a metaphor for how Jarvis felt owned and manipulated by the press at the time because he'd become this overnight, 16-year overnight sensation. And I think that's why I'm conflicted by it, because it does these two things. It's beautiful and disgusting at the same time. Jane is still excited about new music these days, but she's also excited about a show she's been producing now on the West End called Rehab the Musical. She's also in the midst of writing a cozy crime novel at the moment. And yes, don't think for a moment this is like Murder, She Wrote. Think retirement home for famous celebrities. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much to Jane for talking with me. Be sure to check out her Britpop trilogy, including her new book on Pulp, which will be out on March 7th. And a quick reminder that you can also buy my book on 80s musicians and where they are today, 80s Redux, and its sequel, Live Through That, on 90s artists wherever you buy your books. And if you like this show, please leave a review where you're listening. It always helps others find us. And of course, subscribe so you'll know when the latest episode comes out. You can also follow me on threads at Mike Hipple and Facebook at Mike Hipple Photo, all one word. Thanks for listening.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 